Hello, and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at austinarttalk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Alyssa Taylor Went is a multidisciplinary artist, filmmaker, and curator. After spending many years in music, acting, and with businesses selling antiques and vintage clothing, she ended up getting an MFA in photography but quickly found that she wanted the challenge and flexibility of using any medium to communicate the intent and themes of her work. Alyssa splits her time between Austin and Detroit and has a project-based artistic practice that you will learn all about in our great interview. I had such a good time talking with Alyssa, and I think we both revealed some things about ourselves that we were not expecting. Have a listen and share some feedback or any takeaways that you found valuable. Here is Alyssa. Thanks for being on my podcast, Alyssa. Well, thanks so much for having me, Scott. Yeah, I'm of course. I'm very happy to be here. I've been looking forward to it for a while. So you are many things, a few being a conceptual, multidisciplinary artist, a filmmaker, a curator, right? These things are all true, <laughs> yes. And you have more of a uh, project-based practice, right? I do, I do. With deadlines that... Uh, because you thrive under pressure. Isn't that true? <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, it seems to have worked out that way. Um, yeah, so I always define um, my work, my practice as being project-based uh, rather than process-based um, because each project has a variety of mediums just depending on the concept yeah. and whatever the ideas call for. And I try to not limit myself right. to being funneled into just one medium. Yeah, it's what, like whatever makes sense to kind of communicate whatever exactly. you're trying to. Exactly, exactly. So the mediums and what I'm working with varies project to project. But lately it seems like I've mostly been working in video, photography, sculpture. I would say those are the main three yeah the main three things occasionally there's a little performance element or sound soundscape element um but definitely no drawing or painting yeah okay. i leave that to the more masterful <laughs> craft yeah. uh craftsmen craftswomen um but yeah so i've been uh working as a multidisciplinary artist for about 12 years um i was trained as a photographer Mm-hmm. Um, so I really started out in photography and, um, I have a master's from Bard and, um, there's nothing like going to a school where everyone is focusing on one thing to mm. make me 
swim upstream. Yeah, tell say. me about that school. Where is that? Yeah, so it's a BARD program that's actually through the International Center of Photography. Um, BARD is a college in upstate New York, mm. wonderful school. Um, but they started doing a Master of Fine Arts through the International Center of Photography in photography. Um, and since it was in New York City, and I lived in New York City, and I wanted to stay there um, because it's such an inspiration for me, or was at the time, um, that I decided this was the perfect program for me. And it's chaired by an artist named Naylan Blake, uh, whose work is, he's mostly a sculptor, and so I thought it was very unusual that he was Mm. um, chairing this program. Yeah, I was going to ask you about him because it seems like from what I read online, he was a pretty huge influence and mentor for you. He was a really big influence and I'm, I, um, I don't really have a lot of mentors. I wish I had more mentors, but I I don't know if I'm just unmentorable or, or, um, you know, I'm I'm very autonomous and very independent. So, uh, but Naylan was a big influence. Uh, I started out this program being really in love with photography. Um, and I still have, uh, you know, an occasional love affair with, uh, mm-hmm. the medium, but there's, you know, going to a school where everybody just talked about photography and worked in photography. Um, I've always been somebody to sort of work a little bit outside of the boundaries of what everybody else is mm-hmm. focused on. Um, so it sort of drove me a little bit away from that medium and my original practice. And I started um, only staging photographs. So I think that part of my issue with photography is that there's a certain ownership, question of ownership, where people take a photograph and they're capturing something, but they're capturing something outside of themselves. Mm-hmm. So I struggled with, you know how much of a creative process that really was or whether you were just an observer, a documentarian, a documentarian. Exactly. Mm. So, and what was your work like before you went, did your MFA, your photography? It was a lot of, uh, it was very allegorical using a lot of mythology, um, and very inspired by tableau vivants, which are these sort of French scenes that they would create with costuming and sets and backdrops Mm. that would often play out a certain allegory or a certain story. And so I would, uh, sort of try and subvert that idea a little bit with Mm. more modern interpretations, but I really just found myself eventually limited by photography. And so Nayland uh, Blake said to me one day, I was telling him about a new um, project that I wanted to start in school. And he said, but why photography? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, uh, I'm in a master's yeah, program for photography. Doing, right? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, so what? And I was like, okay. And he's like, I mean, why not video or make a zine or do a performance or, and I was, my mind was blown. Yeah. You know, I had been really trained in this, you know, this was this very formal education, very focused in a school about photography. And it really changed everything for me. Hmm. When I realized that I didn't have to say, I realized I didn't have to do what I said I was going to do. I could do anything I wanted. I wonder if that was a message that he just gave you or was he giving that to everyone? I mean, or was everyone else just kind of doing their photography? Everyone else was just kind of doing their photography. Um, And he, I think he just recognized that I was struggling with trying Mm. to sort of, uh, you know, there was sort of a reductive process happening, but with my ideas, trying to sort of fit them in a very narrow box. Yeah. A singular tool. 
Right. So I started making videos and doing performances and making sculptures. And, you know, he just sort of smiled from the sidelines. But, you know, now uh, I feel like photography is sort of advents my other works. It's almost just sort of um, a tool. Mm -hmm. And it's people don't think of me as a photographer, I hope. I think they think of me just as an artist. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of many tools um, that I can use, but it really just blew the lid off of everything I was planning. Mm. It allowed me to incorporate things that are not traditional art mediums as well. Um, I have a personal history of playing music. I was in rock and roll Mm -hmm. bands for many years. Um, And I acted in underground films in San Francisco and I was an antique dealer. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it was. I really, I do miss that. Which I definitely want to talk about your like love of collecting and objects. And I think that goes probably Mm, with that. For sure. Well, um, but I was able to bring in a lot of these other sort of skills or desires Mm -hmm. or loves in my life. And use them also as tools. Yeah. I owe it all to Nayland, yeah. <laughs> I guess, giving me such good advice um, when I was still sort of not completely formed as an artist yet. Yeah, that must have been exciting just to realize that you could utilize all these other interests and skills and things that you had developed throughout your life and your artwork too, and use that to create what you wanted to realize your vision or. Well, I think the thing is, too, is that with our education system, everything is often just um, pigeonholed where you're, you need to specialize in one thing um, so that you can make money or fall back on yeah. a plan B. Or It's the safe route. It's, it is the safe route. But I, I really don't think that's the best uh, way to approach um, art making. I mean, maybe it is for some people. Maybe people thrive off of that restriction. But that was not helping me. It was just making me... Um, very limited in what I could do. So I don't know how far you want to go back, but I'm just wondering maybe what your origins are of wanting to be an artist or when you first started thinking about art in your life or influences, early influences. Yeah. So um, I, I mean, I feel like I've always been an artist. I think most Mm. people that make art have been a creative force. Yeah. Whether they realize it or not, most of their life. Or did they fight that? Some people fight it and suppress it, though. That's true. That's true. It doesn't sound like you probably did. I didn't. Well, you know, um, oddly, uh, my mother is a professional, lifelong artist. Mm -hmm. She is a traditional, well, fairly traditional landscape painter um, and had gallery representation and books. And so that was an interesting influence because um, although I was encouraged to be creative, her work could not be more different from what I do. Um, I have a very contemporary conceptual practice um, and she has, you know, a very painterly practice. Um, But being raised by a painter and my father was an architect. So there was always sort of this creative energy in in my house. Actually, when I, I think the first time I publicly showed my art um, I was about five. Oh, wow. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and um, my mother had a big opening and there was, um, you know, a babysitter, someone there, you know, looking after me. And, you know, she sort of had kept me busy doing some drawings. Yeah. So, you know, and I think it was explained to me, this is your mother's art and she's selling it in this space. And I thought to myself, gosh, you know, what, what a great idea. <laughs> so... 
I took these drawings and I taped them up on the wall with a little piece of paper next to each one, I, you know, f- eye level for a child under my mom's paintings that said 25 cents. <laughs> nice. My mother was not okay. pleased with that. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I was sent home rather quickly yeah. um, after that. But um, But your drive wasn't stifled, I'm sure. Yeah, so I was always encouraged to be creative. I grew up with educational toys and no commercial toys. Um, Mm. I had things called the anti-coloring books in the 70s. They were these coloring books that had no drawing. It was a blank page with maybe a little bit of a border and a description like you just saw the most amazing spaceship, you know, show us what it looks like. So they were anti-coloring books because they didn't have a drawing that you filled in. It had... Uh, an idea yeah, and maybe a little border and then just a blank area. That's a great idea. I've never heard of that. Yeah. I think, I think they're long, um, long gone. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, you know, so I was an avid reader and then ended up, uh, my parents split up and my mother took me to Arizona and, uh, you know, I got into music. So that was really my first, mm. um, my first love was a uh, music. Basically, punk rock saved my world mm-hmm. um, in the mid in the mid eighties. Um, and so I really embraced uh, underground culture and music. And I learned about all sorts of things, probably some things I wasn't supposed to mm-hmm. know about mm-hmm. when I was really young. Um, and so I really just wanted to get back to New York because that's oh, where okay. I, I was born. Yeah. And I knew that there were all of these exciting and dangerous things happening in New York. Um, I'm sure being in the kind of the punk scene that probably encourages you to really develop your own personal style and kind of a more, a more be more on the fringe of oh, the mainstream. Sure. Oh, right? for sure. I mean, you you kind of couldn't do anything wrong yeah. in the punk scene. You know what I mean? Any, any form of expression. I mean, the more volatile, the better in those days. Um, it sounds like the blank coloring book in a way. Too. Yeah. It's like, it's totally open to whatever you want to imagine. Well, and also at the time, I mean, this was the, the era of Ronald Reagan. So every Everything felt very conservative in terms of mainstream culture mm. at the time. So um, to be embraced by older people who were really uh, eccentric, um, who encouraged me to just be the weirdo I, I mm. tr- really and truly am, was so uh, uh, was so enlightening. Yeah. To not feel like I had to be anything or follow this cookie cutter path. That's quite a gift. I don't know. I can't relate to that necessarily. <laughs> but. It was it was a beautiful accident that happened to mm. me. Literally, the girl who had the lock, locker next to me, Kathy Teed, she was listening to a Walkman. <laughs> and I said, what are you listening to, man? You know, and she put the headphones, I I pictured in slow motion in my mind. She picked up the headphones in like slow motion. I see her putting them on my head, my eyes getting bigger Mm -hmm. and bigger. And it was uh, Nevermind the Bullocks by the Sex Pistols. Yeah, and I just looked at. I just stood there, and we just our eyes locked. And finally, I took the headphones off, and I was like, "What is this?" Um, and you know, my life was forever changed from that mm-hmm. moment on. You know, there are these pivotal moments that um, that I do remember that are so instrumental to making us who we are. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, also just the sense of individualism and autonomy. Um, I mean, my mother was very busy with her art career, so I sort of raised myself and 
to some degree. I mean, she encouraged me to be very independent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this movement of disenfranchised people who were different and they found a sense of community through their um, sort of feeling like an outsider in society and through their anger um, at things they saw around them in the world. Um, and we were all just encouraged to be autonomous and independent and expressive. You know, the whole DIY you know, culture that we have now really came th- from things like punk with, yeah. you know, kids that had nothing and people making zines and making bands and buying stuff at pawn shops and thrift stores and Costumes all of this. Or, yeah. Exactly. And so I really learned to, you know, forge my own identity and um, make my own path out of what I wanted but still by being very conscientious of others. And it also sort of formed this alternative family that I see repeated now in the art communities I'm a part of where, you know, we all sort of support and look out for each other. Um, and some of us have great, you know, families. And But I mean, I feel like it's just this sort of familial connection where we support each other and encourage um, people to go further and t- to believe in themselves. And I mean, I know that sounds a little corny, but no, I, I it's, like it. it's super important. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you were doing music, was there any part of you that was still like drawing and creating things or objects or anything? I really, well, you know, I, I moved, uh, I, I got my undergraduate degree from NYU and, um, so you made it back to New York. I made it back to New York yeah. and, uh, I went to NYU, um, in the eighties mm-hmm. <laughs> and at the time New York was really, um, different than it is now. It's, it's really gotten pretty fancy and very protected and very safe. But at the time, you know, anyone that you saw that was different, you either knew them, you knew of them, or they just moved to town. Mm-hmm. It's a very small community of mm. freaks. And, you know, so I was friends with, Uh, rock and rollers and painters and drag queens and you know everything was all mixed together it was a very small community of people and I began photographing my life basically Mm. late night parties and goings on and debauchery and um, so that's where the photography started that's where the photography started and someone said you know you should look at this photographer named Nan Golden I said Nan Golden Who's that? Never had heard of her. Her career hadn't really been reborn yet. And she ended up teaching a workshop at NYU. And I took the workshop with her. And we had sort of a tumultuous understanding. Um, But she helped my work a lot at the time. Um, And then I ended up leaving New York and going to San Francisco. So I spent the 90s in San Francisco. And I, you know, started making music, played in bands, um, made records, went on tour. I had a vintage clothing store called Das Pussycat okay, nice. <laughs> that people um, still remember, which is very, um, very sweet. So um, in San Francisco, so I started my own business, which at the time seemed like a really big deal, you know. Um, but again, going off this idea of doing it, you know, DIY, autonomy, independence, you know, rather than working for all these other businesses, I started my own business with Brian Fry and we had this great store and we had art shows there and fashion shows and events and, Mm. you know, it was a really fun, super creative time. And San Francisco, believe it or not, was very inexpensive. My store, my store was in the mission and I lived in the mission 
Um, and so there were all sorts of, again, all these really different people that had been disenfranchised or come from, you know, rejected from places they grew up. And this in- amazing community of creative weirdos. I mean, the artists, you know, Chris Johansson at the time and gosh, all these bands and all these sort of alternative spaces, Star Cleaners and Purple Onion and the Chameleon and you know, we were all young weirdos that that made our own uh, livelihood, mm. and it was a an amazing time. I feel really lucky to have participated yeah. in that. And then, um, so people started putting me in films. So I started acting in all these sort of B movies mm-hmm. um, in San Francisco, um, uh, Modfuck Explosion, and In, and Frisk, and. I do, I die and fancy's persuasion. There were lots of movies. So I thought it was so fun. I didn't realize how lucky I was. I was like, Oh yeah, my movie's playing at something called Sundance. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I did, I didn't know anything about it uh, coming from this sort of underground scene. Um, and you know, mostly being involved in music and art. So, uh, I moved back to New York with the idea of being an actor. Okay. Oh. Yeah. I sort of, you know, gave up a very comfortable life in San Francisco and felt like I had something more important to give to the world or some there was there was something else, you know, that yeah. to discover. But acting. Um well at the time that seemed like the direction, you know, there had been a certain amount of serendip- serendipity, you know, being cast in all these films. Yeah sort of by accident that I thought, well, maybe there's a reason for this. Hmm. And at the time I thought it was, um, because I was meant to be an actor. So I, um, started, any training? Sorry to interrupt. Well, I started taking, you know, I took like the My- uh, Meisner classes oh, okay. and I took all these, you know, master's classes in New York and stuff. And I soon realized that I wasn't a very good actress. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, the reason being is I I think that, um, you know, you really have to strip away all your personality. And Mm. I mean, you, you know me, Scott, I have, I've got a lot of personality. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it was very hard for me to get, to try and strip all Mm. that away. There were so many layers um, of personality for better or for worse. And I also realized being an actor, you don't have any autonomy. You have no control. It's someone else's project. It's someone else's project. They have to hire you and pick you, and you're at their mercy. And you're at the mercy of bad ideas, not just somebody else's project, but you could do a great job and be in a terrible film. Or it could never even be finished. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I I didn't really like that lack of control, and... Um, I really felt like, you know, it was something too that you had to rely on other people to do. You can't just sit home at, you know, at home, look in the mirror, you know, to be <laughs> or not, you know, I mean, it's, it's very hard to yeah. act by yourself. So it was, a, you know, you had to constantly rely on a community and other people. And so that pushed me back into art making, hmm. um, which I'd never really given up, but I had sort of been on the sidelines for a little while. And at this point, I thought I was a little concerned that I was somewhat of a dilettante, you know, because I here I was playing music, and then I was acting in movies, and I was running a business. And I was like, what does this all mean? And you wanted to focus a little bit more on something? Well, I wanted to focus and I, I wanted to really do what was true to myself. And um, I realized that all the 
you know, wonderful opportunities people had given me to act in their films, they were pretty much just casting me as myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm honored that they thought I was interesting enough to be a they character <laughs> in the film, but I, you know, I wasn't really a, a very good actor, but all of this background really gave me an incredible amount of an arsenal of skills that I did not know how valuable this would be mm. later on in my life. So I ended up uh, re-embracing photography, um, going back to sort of my roots, and I decided that I really wanted to get a master's degree. And so I thought about trying to go to Yale or Columbia or all these what they call fast-track graduate programs, Mm -hmm. and I realized that I was really called to this more independent, unusual program chaired by Nail and Blake, which was the Bard MFA at ICP. Which actually, everyone I went to the program with, we always joke because the International Center of Photography has the same acronym as the Insane Clown Posse. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So when I tell people, you know, this is my time at ICP, they think I'm like a juggalo or something. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That would be fascinating. Um, I mean, so I'm wondering in that program, once you started to kind of diverge into your own thing, How did that sit with the program or how did that fit in? You know, like what kind of feedback did you get from other students? Were they like jealous? Were they like, what are you doing? Or, I mean, how did that culminate to in like a thesis or? Well, um, I mean, we were all just sort of scrambling to work and be in school. Um, So people enjoyed being looped into my crazy projects. Mm -hmm. And everyone had very different intentions and conceptual bases for their practice. Um, So it wasn't really a competitive atmosphere, but uh, the school was not especially supportive Mm. because they are connected to a museum of the same name that is solely about photography. And they are very pro-photography. So to see somebody sort of busting out of the, you know, their program and developing this sort of multidisciplinary practice I don't think they were very happy with that. And my thesis show had no photography in oh, it. Oh, wow. Such a rebel. <laughs> well, no, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't no, I know, trying I know. to, but, um, but yeah, so it, I, I feel like, you know, a lot of times people get a lot of um, postgraduate support in terms oh, of yeah. um, teaching opportunities and um, recommendations and introductions. And I feel a little bit like I sacrificed those opportunities to do what I wanted. But you had to do that, really. But I had no choice. I mean, this is, I just, this is my truth. Mm -hmm. I mean, my work is just the truth of who I am. Yeah. So I think that was the right choice to make. What were some of the themes of your thesis? Or does that, is that kind of the genesis of the work you're doing now? Uh, I mean, It was my sort of very early um, attempts to create um, an exhibition um, that's centered around a video. So I made a video called You the Vandal. Um, that whose name is from a Moondog song. And it was filmed mostly in the desert uh, with a lot of teenagers. And, um, you know, there are pictures of it. There are stills from it on my website online. But uh, so I had sort of some sculptural elements and everything was sort of tied back in with the film. So I was sort of learning very early on how to incorporate different mediums 
with one concept or Mm -hmm. have one idea be a springboard for all sorts of presentations. Mm -hmm. What year was that? So I finished my MFA in 2008. Okay, so that wasn't that long ago. So maybe if you want to talk about maybe some highlights after that until now of different shows that you've done that you'd like to share. Um, So I, um, I did a couple residencies in Scandinavia. I had one um, in Iceland and another one at the El Cuve. I'm going to butcher the name, but I think it's the Ladamoen Kunstnerwerkstätte in Trondheim, Norway. I've done performances at Envoy Gallery, Deitch Projects, uh, St. Cecilia, Numu Arts Center, the Museum of Arts and Design, the Fusebox Festival. Um, I've shown internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, both solo exhibitions and group shows. And I mostly worked with um, nonprofit galleries. So I don't, uh, rather than have representation at a specific gallery, um, it's allowed me to work um, with all different kinds of galleries all over the place that just base their programming on exhibitions instead of having a stable of artists. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've done, you know, several film projects, um, photography, sculpture, I've curated shows. And I moved to Texas. Uh, exactly seven years ago. Hmm. So it was sort of a beautiful accident. I came out to do a show with Collab Projects called Transfer Station. And uh, it was really amazing working with Sean Gallagher, who runs Collab Projects, who's still a good friend. And we actually work together um, doing curatorial projects sometimes. Uh, So yeah, I just moved to Austin and... there's a few reasons I decided to stay in Austin. I love New York. I was born in New York, but New York is no longer the hotbed of eccentric, creative adventure that I had experienced in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it's a lot, it's based on sort of money and I don't know, it's just very difficult for artists yeah. there right now. Super yeah. difficult. Um so when I came to Austin, I it was supposed to be a temporary stay, and I did a few uh, shows and performances, and everyone was so amazing um, and so incredibly supportive. I've never really experienced that with my art career until I came to Austin. So that was a game changer for me. You know, I started working with all different kinds of institutions and being given opportunities to curate shows and apply for grants. Mm -hmm. And I really found that people were very interested in having a real conversation about the work um, and not just sort of socializing at the events or, you know, New York is such a sort of hustle. Yeah. Um, and here there's really nothing to hustle, you know? I mean, we all are part of the community and supporting and helping one another. So that sort of l- lack of, you know, maybe bigger opportunities provides for this incredible network of support. Um, and so, you know, I started being included in people's shows and joining. I'm part of the ICOSA Art Collective. We're a nonprofit 20-member artist-run collective. Um, with a gallery space and canopy. And, you know, I've gone on to jury shows and help other people with their grant writing. And um, I really just have become involved in all different levels, which I don't think was something that mm. um, that New York really has the potential for right now. Um, and so I just really embraced Austin as my home. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so a, I don't know where to go from there. Yeah, it's a great place to be. I think what I'd like to really get into now is like your actual 
art practice and kind of how you think about your work, creating work, how you you know, even keep track of your ideas, like habits and ways of coping with stress around creating work or whatever, just like anything that you think might be helpful for or interesting for people to hear about, just like mm. the nitty gritty of your art creation? Well, um, I mean, every project is super different. So um, I have a studio um, at Canopy currently, but my work happens in all different spaces. So another thing that I learned from Naylan Blake um, in my grad program was that as an artist, you have to remember that you're always working. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're not just working when you're in the studio, actually making something. You're working when you're sleeping and dreaming and reading and looking at other people's art and having conversations and tripping over a rock and you know it's all part of your practice and to be able to embrace every element of your life as mm-hmm. being part of your practice takes the pressure off of going to the studio right. and sort of the blank you know the mm. blank page and just to think of your studio as another tool um so that i think that help that can help me at least get over that sort of intimidation of having you know, a very large project to undertake or not knowing what's next. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's not just the actual making, but it's the thinking and absorbing the world that all goes into it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know. You asked me so many, there were oh. so many great elements <laughs> to that question. I'm not even sure where to begin. Um, but I, um, you know, I've had a pretty cons- consistent amount of shows. So right now, uh, my practice is driven by deadlines more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily healthy. That's the way I don't I know if I to. would. Yeah, that's. The, I mean, it is sort of the way the world uh, turns. But um, you know, I have several shows coming up, so I feel like my new projects are definitely evolving from the last project. Like the train of thought is definitely an evolution. Um, I do do a lot of research. I do a lot of reading and uh, watching sort of uh, obscure films. Um, I love going to flea markets and thrift stores. Um, You know, some of my sculpture is assemblage or inspired by um, antiques or Mm -hmm. junk. And so, you know, I'm I'm constantly trying to learn new uh, materials, like working with glass or latex or casting or ceramics or bronze, um, metalwork. I mean, you know, and and whether or not these end up getting used in a project, it sort of stretches my, um, the boundaries that I don't even realize are in place that it can restrict sort of the concept, you know, the framework for something. Yeah. Um, so I'm constantly trying to do things that are outside of my wheelhouse that I'm not good at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think to put yourself in that kind of vulnerable position, it's really important. I mean, both, uh, for artists and also just in life in general, I like putting myself in, um, uncomfortable situations because I think there's so much value in that vulnerability. Mm. Um, I feel like sometimes when you come from a place of, practice or routine or um sort of some sort of like master practice i feel like there's sometimes not room for discovery yeah right so i had read actually in one of the i think one of the interviews one of your interviews online you were talking about listening as you work 
Could you maybe expand on that a little bit? You're like listening to the materials, you're listening as mm. you're working, and it's mm-hmm. kind of like you're getting this feedback. And like, tell me about that, how that feels. Well, I really think that there's, I, you know, I'm an animist, so I believe in the energy of objects. Um, and that's actually a big component to my video installation, Haint, that's opening at the Visual Arts Center. So as an animist, I really believe that objects have energy. Um, they have an organic sense of matter, of course, but they also have sort of a residue of the hands that they've passed through, um, especially if we're talking in terms of antiques or older things. And it could be a positive or negative energy. But also, I think that materials have a voice. Um, and often I feel like this is an interesting relationship because as artists, we think of materials as tools for us to use. So we are manipulating this material to make it into what we want, right? But then over the years, I, I mean, I know this sounds a little bit tinfoil hat no, or something, I but so. <laughs> I mean, I, I just feel like there is this um, energy in the objects that has a voice that, and it, it doesn't necessarily have the same intentions for itself as you do. And I feel like if you are able to listen to that and pick up on that, you know, on that level of vibration with materials, then it becomes more of a collaboration with the material rather than you sort of dictating form, Mm -hmm. right? And I think it's, uh, artists collaborate a lot more than they realize, both with materials, um, with the people around them. I mean, I know that being an artist can be really difficult because you're often working in isolation, right? But we have to remember that this is all about communication, like the whole point of art, right? Is trying to be a part of a conversation, Mm -hmm. right? So you are in conversation with other artists, even if you're working in isolation in your studio, right? And not just other artists, but people, people that see your work and you're going to see other people's work. There is this sort of invisible conversation happening. And there's even conversations that someone said something to me about this the other day. They were saying how influenced they are by people's work on the other side of the world. Now that we have the internet, you can look at other people's work, you can watch it. All this influence is just like flying all around the planet. Well, it's it's, because now it's a global conversation, which, you know, we have that privilege with technology, but, um, and also something I enjoy about going to art fairs. Some people don't really like going to art fairs, but I really love to see the unspoken threads Mm. of continuity and connection and the sort of unspoken thematic yeah. occurrences. Yeah, all these disparate people are coming together in one place. You can kind of see it all right. at once. And then you're like, oh, I see the connections here. Right. There's and like if all this is happening at, at, at once, there's no way that it's a response to each other because it's happening simultaneously. Ah. So is it a response to cultural influence, you know, uh, reaction? Um, to things, to current events. It's so fascinating. In fact, um, so just a little aside, when I go with uh, friends of mine to to art fairs, it can be a little discouraging because the art world has gotten so commercial. So one of the ways we keep it fun is (laughs) we play a game that I call Name That Zeitgeist. Okay. (laughs) Nice. So, um, so we go and we, you know, we sort of start out walking together and then, you know, you lose someone and they wander off and we sort of rejoin, you know, in an hour after we've looked through this, you know, one particular fair. And I'm like, well, what do you think? And they're like, you mean in terms of zeitgeist? And I was like, I saw 
disco balls and colonialism. And they're like, really? I saw a lot of pantyhose and trauma, you know? <laughs> and so we sort of collect the ah. zeitgeist themes and we sort of keep a little list, you know, on our iPhones or something. And it makes um, for sort of a fun game and also um, a fascinating conversation in terms of what is that global conversation that that creative people are having, whether they realize it or not. Mm-hmm. You mentioned collaboration a minute ago. I wonder if you could maybe talk about what role that plays in your practice. Like you're collaborating with artists, you're doing shows with other artists, you're curating shows with other artists. It's a form of collaboration. And you're also doing performances where you're collaborating and involving the audience itself. Exactly. So I think, um, as I said, I feel like we all are collaborators, whether we um, intend to be or not in a positive way. Um, As I mentioned, I'm part of the ICOSA art collective. And so we, um, run our own space and do everything ourselves from the publicity to the installation and, uh, the programming. And so most of our shows are two person shows. Um, and it's just for sake of making sure that everybody gets a fair chance to Mm -hmm. exhibit. Um, and so in several of these shows, um, specifically, um, last year with Aaron Cunningham, um, I did a show called These Are Precious Scars. And, and then I, the year before in 2017, I did a show with Elaine Elaine Shen. Um, both of these artists are friends of mine, but they, they work in very different mediums. And we had, didn't really know each other that well. And we decided to each time make an exhibition completely out of collaborative work, mm-hmm. which is not as easy as it <laughs> no, sounds. No, it doesn't sound easy to me, actually. <laughs> um, and so, but the result was so fascinating because, um, you know, while it was very difficult to put your ego aside mm. and, you know, especially if you're used to making all the decisions about your work and you have to sort of listen to the other person and try some of their ideas and compromise mm-hmm. with things, um, it made for a really amazing experience. And I think a really interesting show because the work was not, you know, Elaine's work or mine or Aaron's work or mine, but it was like a third being, you know, the, you know, this sort of dual being, um, combining both of our skill sets and both of our mindsets and became like a living conversation as a monologue though. You know, it was, it's a really, uh, really interesting model. Um, it's like a relationship. It's better. It, it is like a relationship. Two people can do better than one, maybe. Yes, yes. Um, so that was really fascinating. Um, I have another show at ICOSA coming up this April, opening April 12th, with um, Kate Sheila Gee. And we have a lot of surprises in store. Mm, okay. So, um, but I've also been collaborating in the sense um, of my filmmaking. So, I think that that's another thing. Uh, people don't realize that making films is a, like a giant collaborative art project. Oh, yeah. Basically. Huge. I mean, you have the person creating the film and directing the film, which is me. But then, you know, there's a crew of anywhere from four to 25 people and a cast, you know, of an endless amount of people. There's the post-production. And all these people have really, really important creative input this sense of collaboration really forces you to be confident about what you want, uh, to stand by your convictions, but also to attribute great value to other people's time, their skills, and their ideas. 
um, all the films that I've made, especially the most recent um, project, Haint, um, were really a project of many people, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's hard for me to really say that it's my film because there were so many people really instrumental in this. Um, I was texting with my, my line producer, Ben Friedman, who lives in Detroit, um, and he said, I really hope I can come and see your exhibition for Hain. I said, well, you need to come because this is as much as your celebration as it is yeah. mine. Yeah. And he was like, oh, yeah, that's true. It's like, yeah, I couldn't have done it without all yeah. of the people involved. But one thing about filmmaking that was really interesting um, is that it combines. I was saying earlier that I, you know, at some point in my life, in my sort of late 20s, early 30s, I had this. Um, sort of creeping fear that I was somewhat of a dilettante because none of the things I'd done in my life made sense. They didn't really inform one another. I was like, I didn't know what all this means. And now when I'm making films and, you know, I start out and, you know, with my idea, my art practice and, you know, visuals, Um, or the cinematography based in my photography practice. But then, you know, everyone's like, oh, you're so great at working with all the actors. You really understand what they need. Mm. And I'm like, well, yeah, because I was in all those (laughs) underground movies. Or, you know, people say, God, you know, the, the, the production design was so unique. I mean, where did you find all of those props for the movie and I say well (laughs) you know (laughs) from my house but also you know years of being an antique dealer and a vintage clothing store owner so Mm. yeah and then people are like well but the soundtrack was so incredible I mean who did your sound design I'm like all those years of playing music mixing records making records Mm -hmm. so I'm like wait a minute, you know? So my, I I guess my message for people with this is that you have to trust the organic path of your life, Mm. that everything is important. There is nothing that's uh, a waste of time or the wrong path. Everything will inform what you're doing right now if you let it. Yeah. Or maybe even look at things that you've neglected or that you've forgotten, the skills that you had and try to figure out how to pull them forward and integrate them into what you're doing. Well, maybe? but I, I don't even feel like people have to force themselves to do that yeah. because I feel like when the time comes, you know, if you were a stamp collector or something and then, you know, you become a journalist and then you're like, how can I incorporate my stamp collecting? But then years <laughs> later, yeah. they need someone to interview this 107 year old, like master stamp collector and do this incredible private one-on-one interview. Yeah. And they just need a journalist that knows something about rare stamps. And you're like, this is the culmination of everything I've been uh, yeah. working for <laughs> my whole life. <laughs> but you just, you know, that's the thing. And I, you know, when I, when I speak at universities also, I, I, that's one thing I really tell that I think is really important that I wish somebody would have told me me when I was in school is that everything from your life is important. Mm, yeah. And everything is fodder for art, right? So even if you had an incredibly traumatic childhood um, with, you know, unspeakable things that you have overcome, man, make some art with yeah, that, yeah. with that emotion. You know, everything is valuable. Um, into creating the the whole and complete person. Um, I mean, we're all sort of works in progress, right? Yeah. But we're informed by all these experiences. And so I really think that um, it took me a long time to learn that lesson, that everything from my life 
was of equal value. And then, you know, now I told you with, <laughs> with filmmaking and suddenly I'm like, wait, I can use all of these bizarre, disparate skills that I thought um, had no meaning or relevance or use in my life. Yeah. I wonder then, though, how the art changes you, too. It's kind of back and forth. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm definitely informed by all the experiences. And like I, the same way I was talking about the energy of objects, um, I feel like you cannot dictate how your work is going to reveal itself mm. or how it's going to be received in the world right. or what effect it's going to have. And I think that if you stay open to you know your work having its a life of its own that it will come back and sort of inform your life as you said yeah. i mean i think there is a reciprocity there with the work um i really like this quote that was on one of your pieces on your website i can't make good work when i'm too fucking polite <laughs> <laughs> cuz i actually the reason that stood out to me is because i'm kind of you know, just be a little vulnerable myself. I'm kind of coming out of this short relationship, kind of realizing that oh, maybe I'm maybe I'm a little bit of a pleaser, you know, mm. as a person. And it's, I'm mm-hmm. trying to d- dissect what that means and where did that come from, from my mm. childhood or my parents or whatever. Like where you become super attuned to other people and you're always kind of giving over to their needs more than you know taking care of your own needs. And then I just wonder like. How does that translate into the type of artist you might be too? Right. It's like if you're too polite all the time about your art or making your art or putting your you out in the world because you're trying to not not to rock the boat. Does that strike you in any certain way? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think we carry over the habits we have as people definitely um, inform the work. Um, And that quote in particular is from um, a lover of mine from years ago. Yeah, that was his comment about, I showed him, you know, he came over to my studio, I showed him something I was working on, and he said, you know, the, the, you know what the problem is with your art? It's the same problem that you have as a person. And I was like, oh my God. You know, like, <laughs> I was like, really? Oh, go, go oh, ahead. You know, this. please enlighten me. <laughs> and he said, why do you have to be so fucking polite? And I was like blown away. I mean, it was not what I was expecting at all. And I had never thought of that as being something that informed my work or an issue. Like since when is it an issue to be courteous, right? So, but I realized what he really meant was um, a certain amount of um, safety or doing what is expected. Um, and this could also apply to somebody working in a medium that they're, you know, they're expected to make paintings, you know, but they really want to do a dance performance, you know, but, but everyone expects them to keep making these great paintings. You know, it sort of is like um, easier to live up to this sort of a persona that you've created rather than, I guess, take risks. Yeah. And, you know, being an artist is risky. You know, normally you don't have much money, you know, um, very hand to mouth and stuff like that. So, um, I think we don't want to disappoint collectors or confuse people or, but I, I really don't think people should be restricted or polite. And sometimes that, uh, involves being stronger with our convictions. Yeah. You know, like I have very eccentric superstitions and convictions. Like I will not rent a white rental car okay. for, you know, reasons I won't go into. <laughs> uh, but literally I've gone, you know, to a reservation when I'm traveling and that's all they have left. And I literally will leave and go to another rental car place. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I'm like, this seems crazy, but at the same time, if we don't have our con- convictions and our beliefs, I mean, in terms of everything, politics, per- the way we live our lives, personal convictions, then what do we have? Yeah. You know, then we become sort of, um, I mean, you, we should be flexible and adaptable, but also I think having opinions, I really, I love opinionated people and yeah. I am definitely pretty opinionated. Yeah. So, uh, I, I feel like I got a little off track there. Well, um, what, what that makes me think of is like, I guess what I think that I want to work towards more personally mm, is just yeah. being more of a kind of like a, an autonomous grounded person within myself and understand my own values and my own boundaries, you know, because I feel mm-hmm. like if you're doing too much pleasing, then you're almost everything you do and say is a reaction to everyone else, what they're saying and doing right. to, to keep things copacetic, you know, right. Instead of you generating your own thing and putting that out there and then risking rejection or pissing someone off or right. pushing them away. But it's really that's your truth, and you have to communicate that ultimately to really, I think, to be fulfilled and to be in the world as yourself. Well, I think so, too. And I think, actually, if you're not pissing someone off, you're not doing it right. Yeah. So yeah. maybe that's your, maybe that's your, um, I don't know, maybe that can be a goal is to make somebody it's a, goal. a little, <laughs> a little yeah. upset. You are such a, like, supportive loving, nice person who walks through the world with grace that I can't imagine you upsetting somebody. So maybe, Mm. maybe, you know, and I I don't mean intentionally upsetting someone, but but doing something with such conviction that you know is maybe not an easy, um, something that's easy to swallow, Yeah, you know? So in terms of my work, how I've sort of approached that or how I try to resist uh, being polite. Yeah. Um, or censoring myself is I've really embraced my darkness. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, you could talk about it in terms of the Jungian shadow side, you know, the underbelly of things, the things we don't like to look at. And it's not even that I'm trying, I'm just not rejecting those things. So it's not like I'm trying to make work that's dark, you know? I mean, I, I, my sensibilities and my signature, you know, my, aesthetics are generally pretty dark. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just not censoring that or, or suppressing not, it. Yeah. not, yeah, not suppressing it, not softening it. Um, and I think there's great value in darkness and the shadow side or fearing it, but I, I really don't fear it. I think it's more just that I try and I think in the past that I have tried to make my darkness more palatable or appealing in a way. But I mean, I'm, you know, the same advice I'm giving you, I'm trying to take away that need to make it so acceptable. Um, And I think, you know, it's interesting. uh, Sometimes I have people, a comment that I get from people is that my personality is really not very dark. I mean, if you know me very well, I have a very gallows sense of humor. But um, but in general, I uh, gave a lecture recently and um, at St. Ed's here and two of the students, you know, had a burning question they wanted to ask me. And so they were too shy to ask it during the lecture. So they came up, they approached me afterwards and they said, you know, we wanted to ask you something, Alyssa. And I said, sure, you know, and they said, so your work, your work is like really dark and it's like kind of about death. Um, and it's kind of like a little like scary. And I said, yeah, okay, okay, sure. You know, yeah. <laughs> and they said, 
but like you seem really cool and friendly and like you're really nice. They were like, so how do you account for the discrepancy between your personality and your work? So, um, which I just thought was adorable. So adorable. But anyway, I told them basically that, you know, this is what uh, you would call an artistic outlet. And I do consider making art a privilege. We live in a first world country and being an artist is a fucking privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I have the privilege of being a working artist And in that, you know, this is an avenue for a very large amount of darkness. You know, I have a lot of, uh, you know, I connect with, you know, ruin and destruction and uh, neglect and death and trauma and memory and, you know, inherited genetic memory. So a lot of these sort of recurring themes and motifs in my work definitely have a dark presentation. And so I said, you know, I said to these girls, I said, so can you imagine if I didn't have this outlet, the privilege of being able to express all of this and all of that darkness was in the person you're talking to right now? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, it makes me think of Paul Swallow too. Like that's his different characters that he does or people that he inhabits like are an outlet for things that he oh, needs for to sure. express. For sure. And I think a lot of people don't have that outlet and I think it does fester. Yeah. I don't know what I could do, what I would do if I couldn't, you know, talk about <laughs> darkness all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe but, yeah. we should, um, let's talk about hate to kind of finish Let's talk up about hate. I would love to. I would coming love up to. soon and I, it's a, such an interesting project, long-term project, Aww. and I think it has all the things we've talked about in it. Thank you. Yeah, I, um, I'm very excited to be showing Haint. So Haint is a three-channel video installation that is showing at the Visual Arts Center. The opening is the 25th. It will be up for a month. Um, And the exhibition um, is showing not only the projected three-channel full version of of, um, the video, but also 16 uh, mural photographs and two sculptural installations Mm. um, that are all related to the project. So it is a true multidisciplinary uh, presentation um, of this project. So um, Haint uh, is a project I started in 2013. It's now been um, about six years, five and a half years Mm. that I've been working on this, which is the longest I've ever worked on any one project. Um, I highly recommend it. It's very difficult, but very rewarding, you know, having a project that spans over so much time. And, you know, I've had, I have many shows throughout this whole period. Um, The main reason for taking this long was just funding. I didn't have uh, the money to finish it. So I'm very lucky that I do get um, grants from the Cultural Arts Division from the city of Austin. um, And I'm very grateful for those. And that has enabled me to complete the project. Um, So this video was filmed as three separate productions. One was in Texas, in Austin and San Antonio. One was in Detroit, um, and one was in Croatia. They have three completely different casts, crews, um, intentions. Um, I have shown them sort of as works in progress on their own, but they uh, are all part of this project. So haint is a southern colloquial term that means a haunting energy. 
So you wouldn't necessarily say, I saw a haint, but you would say, don't go in that, that house. It's all full of haint. So it's more like a restless spirit that won't move on. And um, the term is both adapted from the word haunt, um, but it also um, incorporates some uh, superstitions and folklore from the Gula community, which is an African-American community um, that brought sort of these superstitions from Africa and they got sort of um, absorbed into Southern uh, American mm-hmm. culture. So for instance, Sherman Williams has a color called haint blue. Yeah. That is a specific color that you paint the ceiling of your porch and to ward off evil spirits. Right. Um, and actually what I recently found out was that the reason for that is because it's supposed to imitate moving water mm. and a troubled spirit cannot cross over moving water. Oh, wow. Yeah, I love okay. that. Yeah. I love that. So all three of these films um, have to do with animism. My um, love of objects. You know, I'm a big collector of bizarre, sort of eccentric, interesting Mm -hmm. things, but also the energy that those objects present and how that sort of affects living beings who possess them or destroy them. Um, But also ruins, architecture, uh, memory, the aftermath of war, um, survival, sort of the dysfunction of families, uh, truth versus memory, and song as a vehicle. Um, so there's a lot of music in all three of these, um, from opera to black metal drones, because I love, um, I love drone metal. I, I don't know <laughs> what that is, but I did read that you were interested in that. <laughs> well, it's sort of like the bands like Sun and Sleep and Ohm and these um, bands that are mostly instrumental that have this very slow, languorous, mm. dark metal. But I listen to a lot of uh, drone metal and black metal in the studio um, because it's very atmospheric and it also has no uh, lyrics. So I don't get distracted by lyrics. I think I'd read in one interview, you said you actually listen to that type of music to help you explore your darkness. Oh, yeah. Well, for sure. <laughs> it definitely puts me in a, in a certain state of mind. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, so the soundtracks are, are, you know, dialogue and ambient sounds. And there's sound effects. And like I said, um, drone metal, opera. And I really am interested in sort of the history of song and how before our written history, when history was really just continued as an oral tradition, a lot of it was done in ancient Greece and uh, with the Romans through song cycles. And historians were basically singers that would, Mm. um, you know, give information. So... I'm using song as sort of a vehicle of information, but it's intentionally, most of it is not in English. So it's not like we're supposed to be getting specific information, but more moods and energy, mm-hmm. right? So, um, but I definitely think singing and music is something that allows a certain amount of emotional mobility. So yeah, I did these three productions and I combined them. I inter-edited them with um, my editor, Um, I mean, I had many wonderful editors work on the film, but the finishing editor was Susan LaMarca, and she helped me sit with many computer monitors side by side, and we edited them in consciousness of... Interplay. The interplay. We inter-edited them together, which was a very long process that Mm. took about a year and a half Mm. 
to complete. And we also intermix the sound. So all three elements have their own soundtracks that had to be um, blended together to not just have a cacophonous presentation so that it's something that people could actually digest. Um, yeah, so there's like shifting attention somewhat. Exactly. So there's a lot of fade to blacks and the cadence of it is really very palatable and very slow and very pensive. Um, I mean, there's definitely dynamics built into it, but it's it's done at such a pace that um, it's meant to be sort of alluring and not off-putting. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too yeah. polite. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to lure but, you with yeah. my film. <laughs> but um, so anyway, so many wonderful people worked on this film and um, it's never been presented as a three-channel projection. So it's actually projected on three walls. Mm -hmm. Um, I have shown it as a split screen, um, single channel, which is how it's, um, you know, plays at festivals or, you know, in theaters or as part of, um, video programming at museums. So I'm happy to say that Haint won. It was the official winner at the 2018 International Istanbul Experimental Film Festival. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. Um, that's a whole nother part of a project is like submitting it to festivals. Right. And, oh my goodness. Right. But I mean, right now I'm really interested in getting this out in the world and having people respond to it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I'm hoping that it will travel. I'm in conversation with several um, art centers and galleries across um, the country. Um, so I'm hoping it can really travel and have a life of its own. But yeah, the piece is... is pretty complicated um and a little dark but there's like a narrative film woven into it too um so the center channel the one i filmed in detroit is um also exists as a feature yeah the feature film right so that is the most narrative aspect um of the project and the narrative was based on stories that my father told me before he passed away um, about surviving after world war ii in berlin Mm-hmm. So my father is German. He was born um, in Berlin and he was a kid basically during World War II and witnessed um, innumerable atrocities mm-hmm. um, and they lost everything. Um, and a lot of my family was killed in the war. But he told, you know, he's a very, um, he was a very self-mythologized um, individual. That's a polite, yeah, that's a polite way of saying it. <laughs> But um, my dad, you know, tended to exaggerate and really embellish his life story. You know, he even told me he worked for the CIA for 27 years on his deathbed. Um, You know, none none of these things I can really verify. But um, I was very interested in the way he presented these stories about growing up in Germany because he he rejected Germany. He rejected his heritage, um, which is, you know, something that's impossible to escape from. You know, to the day he died, he had a thick German accent. But he used to tell these stories that I'm sure were other family stories and exaggerations and, you know, combinations of different yeah. real-life events. But they were so fascinating to me, um, especially since my father had this sort of shame about his heritage and such disdain for Germany that it became... Uh, more appealing to me. Mm-hmm. You know, when information is withheld, we tend to gravitate towards it and become fascinated it's with like it. like the darkness you're shedding the light on. Right, right. So I decided to sort of re-fictionalize his fictionalized memories um, by making a film about them. So I've always been fascinated with Detroit. Detroit is um, one of my favorite places in the world. So I've, al- you know, I've always wanted to do an art project in Detroit 
And so I decided to use Detroit as a stand-in for post-war Berlin. Um, And this was in 2014, so five years ago, Detroit, um, which thankfully is really on the on the up and up it's coming back but at the time it was still pretty um neglected and so i thought this would be a very interesting way to stage not only this narrative um and to sort of recreate these fables of my father's youth and of my family but of also creating a conversation about cultural ruin um, and these cycles of sort of detritus and what does that mean in terms of the temperature of our collective consciousness. And now we're in such a phase of repair and rebuilding and overbuilding and overdevelopment. We're in this sort of abundance period after coming out of a period of sort of neglect Part of what fascinates me about ruins and monuments is like, what is this cycle and how does it mirror sort of a sociological look at us as a culture and as a people um, and how we treat things? And what does that mean in terms of our progress as um, evolved beings? Yeah. Right. This is your contribution to that conversation. Yes. That we were talking about in the beginning. Yeah. Well, and I just wanted to add that, um, so this exhibition, I'm really thankful um, that uh, Mackenzie Stevens and uh, Mark Silva and Claire Donnelly and Robin Williams have been really instrumental in um, putting this together and curating the show and working with me in a very meticulous way to really Mm. present this accurately and the way it was meant to be seen because of my sort of monetary restrictions you know I've had to sort of show this in a piecemeal way and they're really allowing me to present this in you know the way that I wanted it to be seen which is projected on three screens so people can come in for five minutes they could sit there for four hours yeah I was going to ask you how people might interact with the show because this podcast will come out after the opening yes but if someone hears this before the show closes, on what date? So it's uh, it runs from January 25th to February 22nd. Okay. The Visual Arts Center is open Tuesday through Saturday, 11 to 6. Um, so you can go see it any time. And as I mentioned, it's, you know, it's on a loop. Okay. So... Um, while I hope that people have time to watch the entire thing, you could still watch five or 10 minutes of it and get a lot out of it. It's a very dense mm. piece. Um, and, you know, people could sit there for four hours and watch it over and over and over again. Every time I watch it, I'm still like, whoa, like I still see mm. some connection or some detail that I've never seen. And believe me, I've nice. watched it thousands <laughs> of times at this point. Wow. Okay. I've definitely seen it a lot. Um But yeah, so we have a few special events. Um, Tuesday, January 29th at 12 noon, I will be doing a special screening at the Visual Arts Center with a QA. and a So we will start it from the beginning and I will be present uh, for a QA. and a um, and then Tuesday, February 5th at 4 p.m., I'm giving a lecture at uh, UT about my work in general. So mm. that will be a presentation about sort of uh, my whole career and touching on things about Haint as well. And then on Tuesday, the 12th, I will be just hanging out at the VAC. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, people can come and ask me questions or have me, you know, guide them to the show. Mm. I'll just be like available on that day. And on February 19th at 530, we're doing another special screening with a Q&A to follow. 
Wow, you have such a good memory. <laughs> I try. She is not looking at any piece of paper, anyone. <laughs> um, so anyway, there's there's lots of opportunities to come and also talk to me because yeah. it's a it's a piece that is very. Um, not hard to digest, but it, it's it's very complex and can be interpreted in a number of ways. So I I have sort of some signature motifs and things that I use recurring in my work that um, have a lot of meaning for me, but are things that people interpret in a very wide variety of ways. So this intentionally does not have a simple singular narrative. Right. There are many ways to interpret and there are many different, I, I don't know, meanings that people can take away from this. So I wanted to also note that, as I mentioned, there's a full exhibition. So since we were talking about my history of photography, I just wanted to talk a little bit about how photography functions in conjunction with my filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I still do love taking pictures, but I find often with video projects that the photography that's shown are basically stills. Right. Right, they're just screen grabs or freeze frames or whatever it is from a, a high definition. You know, mine was filmed in 4K. I could have done that as well, but to me, the, how boring is that? You know, mm, like yeah. what's the point? It's repetitive for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's redundant. So, um, what I do is um, the photography that accompanies the film. Um, I call them staged production stills. So they are basically staged photographs going back to my very old practice of making these sort of tableau vivants. So I sort of create tableaus using the actors, the locations, and the props from the film. That are all there. That are all there. And I, you know, usually it's like the, you know, the cameramen are like changing the lens or we're moving the lights Mm, or we're, you know, doing something that's going to, you know, they say, hey, you know, everyone take a break. It's going to be 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And so during that time in these little breaks while we're filming, um, I organize and set up these tableaus. So they have the props and the actors and locations, but they're scenes for the most part that you never see in the film. Mm-hmm. So nice. to me, this uh, adds more dimensionality. So the photography actually has a point rather than just being an observation or a document, as we talked about just documenting, um, it actually adds like a fifth dimension yeah. to the piece, right? Because you're like, wait, I didn't see any of these scenes in the film. So you could actually go back and forth, watch the video, go back and look at the photos. And after you look at the photos, go back and see the video again. And the story will continue to evolve and change. So that's really, I found an interesting way to use photography that was not just redundant or as a documentation that I think is um, valuable. Yeah, I think that's a really smart thing to do on a film set. Well, (laughs) thank you, Scott. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing those. Thank you. Well, I would, yeah, I would highly recommend, obviously, if uh, this is before the end of the February that you're hearing this, to go over to the VAC and check out Haint. Well, thanks for your time, Alyssa. Did you have anything else you want to say? No, thank you, Scott. I wanted to say that um, your podcast is so fucking awesome. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and, One um, more F-bomb. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone, I mean, everyone loves it, but I mean, I really think it just serves an important purpose hmm. in the community here. I mean, giving people a chance to feel so comfortable um, with you and really talk about their intentions and their inspirations um, behind the work, I think is a, I don't know, just a very important um, and much needed ingredient in understanding creative process and also understanding, you know, how it's difficult. 
people romanticize, I think, art making and being an artist. And it's not very romantic. It's difficult and it makes you very vulnerable. And, you know, you take a lot of risks and you don't know what's next. And um, so anyway, I think being able to talk and talk things through with you is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then we all realize we're all kind of in the same boat dealing with a lot of the same things. And yeah. And we're more connected in, in a way. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page, and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care.